The gospel is God's alone. He is its ultimate source. It's rooted in his his eternal purposes. God is the divine initiator of the plan. He's the first communicator of its truths. Thus saith the Lord. It's God's, the gospel of God. Paul stresses it's not his. It's not the Romans. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's not the government. It's God's. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Morning, we want to begin a study in uh, Paul's most important epistle, and that is the epistle to the Romans. So take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 1. The title of the message this morning is The Gospel of God's Son, but I assume that you could also title the whole book that if you wanted to, in a sense, because that is exactly what the Apostle Paul writes about. I want you to stand to your feet in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're just going to look at the first seven verses of Paul's epistle, and I want to read the text beginning in verse 1. Please remember that we believe this is the authoritative, inspired, and errant Word of our living God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be His saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing as we study his word this morning. Father, we pray now for your power, your presence, and your preeminence as we study Holy Scripture. I ask that you would provide me a special unction from your blessed Holy Spirit so that your people can feast on your word because we believe that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from your mouth. So meet with us today through this text, by the power of your Holy Spirit, to the glory of Christ and you, our Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is no doubt, due to the lofty theology exalting our glorious God, that Romans can be classified as the Mount Everest of Paul's epistles. But the depth of theology in Romans does not produce a cold orthodoxy, but rather a vibrant Christian experientialism. Once there lived a man born of a devout Christian mother and a pagan father, He chose the way of his father, which meant a life of debauched immorality. He set his course on this path, his mother not stopping praying for him along the way, seeking even counsel from her own pastor, who was Bishop Ambrose of Milan. 
But as this young man paced in the garden of his friend, contemplating the wickedness of his life, he could nearby hear children playing in the grass, singing a refrain from a popular children's song of the day, Tola Legay, Tola Legay, translated, take up and read. Well, in front of him in that garden was a copy of the New Testament scriptures chained to a lectern. And so he walked over and he began thumbing through this copy of the New Testament scriptures from his perspective so that it would land on a random spot. But from God's perspective, God's fingertips were on those pages of the scripture and it landed on Romans 13, a text calling for repentance. Let us cast aside the wickedness and works of darkness. The year, of course, was 386. The man was converted, the Spirit of God using the Word of God to convert this young man from North Africa. You know him as St. Augustine of Hippo, the most influential theologian in the history of the church, other than the Apostle Paul. Others throughout history, like Martin Luther, for example, were also converted just by reading Romans. It encouraged Luther to refer to Romans as the purest gospel. Another theologian described uh, Romans as the cathedral of the Christian faith. Calvin himself said that when anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. And speaking of Calvin, he dedicates his commentary of Romans to a Simon Grenaeus. Grenaeus was a, a German scholar, a Protestant theologian who later joined Philip Melanchthon at the Conference of Worms in 1541 to represent the Protestants of the Swiss churches. He was a high-profile guy. But in the dedication, Calvin reminds Simon of a previous discussion they had had where Calvin says, and I quote, we both thought that the chief excellency of an expounder of the word of God consists in lucid, that is clear, brevity, that is shortness of comments by the preacher. He further reminded Grenaeus that they both agreed, and I quote, that from the number of those who strive at this day to advance the interest of theology, one hopefully could be found who would endeavor to avoid the evil of tiring his readers or listeners from the many words of the preacher. And then Calvin began to explain to Simon that he thought he was that man, that he would devote his own hand as a trial run in writing a commentary on Romans with clarity and with brevity. And at the same time, he said, I feared lest I should incur the imputation of presumption by applying my hand to a work which had been executed by so many illustrious workmen before me. John Calvin said that. So I confess to you my own sentiments in preparing to preach Romans, even before I read that dedication to Simon that Calvin wrote, that there have been many illustrious workmen who have gone before me. And in preparing to preach this, I have felt as if there's nothing I have to offer in one sense. And preaching through Romans is a, is a very tall order. But I've also chosen, before I understood that Calvin decided to do this, to be as clear as possible and as brief as possible. My aim in this series is simple. It's to synthesize the volumes of material that I have used to study Romans into something spiritually digestible for you. To help you get the big picture of Paul's magnum opus, 
What is the main purpose in which he is writing? What what are the broad brushstrokes of his argumentation? And here is the reason. I think that God's people today need help in seeing the consistency of God's sovereign purpose for his people collectively. And personally, as well, by understanding his character and his wisdom, the glory of the gospel, his eternal son and our Lord and Savior, King Jesus. And so, by necessity, this will require that we will go through larger chunks in each sermon. It will only be on the uh, extreme situation that I will divert from that to maybe exposit one or two verses at a time. And I will do that when it's absolutely necessary. So that's sort of a disclaimer. That's free of charge. Now the sermon's actually beginning now. With that being said, before we even get into the guts of verses 1 through 7, we need to understand a little bit about the author. The author, of course, is Paul. He identifies himself in verse 1. You know him as Saul of Tarsus, born um, to Jewish parents in Tarsus, a city on par with the likes of Athens and Alexandria for its scholarship, its education opportunities. It was a university city located in Cilicia, near the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean Sea, a Greek culture, um, a cosmopolitan city. But we also know that he wasn't just educated by the Greeks, he was also educated by the Jews in Jerusalem where he studied at the most prestigious of schools under the distinguished doctor of law Gamaliel who happened to be the grandson of the most famous rabbi who ever lived Rabbi Hillel. In addition to all of that uh, Paul in accordance with the Jewish custom learned his father's trade. His father was a Roman citizen but from the hair of goats all around Tarsus was manufactured a rough cloth used to make tents. And so Paul not only shared his father's citizenship, because his father was a Roman citizen, that he acquired by birth, but he also shared his father's trade as a tent maker. And yet with his proficiency in the Old Testament scriptures, with his Greek education, aware of the philosophers and the methods of argumentation, this cultured man was still thoroughly religious. In fact, it was very likely that he was an elder at one of the local synagogues in Tarsus. He was a rising star in Judaism. And because of his educational connections um, in Jerusalem, he was a rising Pharisee. He refers to himself in the Bible as a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law of Pharisee, which he says led him to be a persecutor of the church. And that explains... Paul's great polemic in defending and defining the gospel in Romans, his emphasis on justification by faith, because formerly he viewed himself as blameless, he says in Philippians 3.8, because of his strict obedience to the law and seeking works righteousness. Here was a man who had experienced what it was like to be trained in the great schools, to be a citizen of the world's greatest empire, to be privileged and birthed circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, yet live a life without God. And all that began to change after he secured a license as he went to the high priest himself and secured a license, a commission by the chief priest to drag Christians away to prison and death because, in his own words, and I quote, he was convinced that he ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. 
In fact, he had already had a taste of blood at the martyrdom of Stephen, even as the executioners laid their garments at his feet as he watched. But not satisfied and thirsty for more blood, Paul headed to Damascus, located in Syria, with a cold-blooded, bad-boy reputation as a self-righteous Jew, known for this, breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. But on the way there, which was a six-day journey, he was intent, no matter how long it took to kill Christians, his life was forever changed. Saul of Tarsus became Paul. He was confronted by a blinding light, And the voice from heaven, the voice of Jesus, I guarantee someone he never thought he would ever hear from, telling him, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul was reborn. He was saved. He was forgiven. He was baptized, life forever changed, reputation forever changed. Now it was said of him, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. That's Paul's own words in Galatians 1.23. So that's the author. And you need to understand a little bit about him to understand his passion about the gospel. He experienced a change in his life. We also need to say a word about the atmosphere. There are several facets of the world that Paul lived in. I think that lended itself to the sovereign success of the gospel. It was a world of bad isms. There was Judaism and heathenism, which, by the way, were both in decay. Judaism, religiously so, uh, because the... um, Sanhedrin were really poor brokers of peace with the Roman Empire and and it really led to their persecution. But also they compromised constantly with the Romans so that Judaism was a, a liberal sort of religion by the time that Jesus walked the earth. And even though the Pharisees were strict according to the scriptures, there was no true spirituality. There was also the polytheism of the Greeks and Romans. It was so out of control that the more educated people spurned it because of its superstition. And the rise of skepticism naturally grew out of this environment of polytheism, heathenism, and Judaism. People were looking for answers to the important questions of life, so they turned to the Stoic and Platonic philosophies which in turn didn't provide sufficient answers to the people. Stoicism left people without hope because it offered an empty fatalism, another bad ism, to the events of the world and the circumstances of one's life. And so people then turned to Platonism. And Platonic thought said that all religions basically were the same at their root. So that gave no hope to anyone. It had no fragment of any source of any authority for people to anchor their beliefs on. It was out of this state of this sort of world that people needed a sure guide they needed some reason some tradition some better foundation something they could hang their beliefs on and this is when thousands of hearts in all parts of the world were prepared sovereignly by God for the gospel the reality and climate of Paul's day the success of the gospel in his own day, should give us great hope. Uh, we also live in a day of bad isms. Do I need to remind you of that? Relativism, skepticism, agnosticism, socialism. By the close of the apostolic era, the total number of Christians reaching the world was half a million. And so as we see the walls of the West crumbling in Europe and Canada and the United States, remember that the church is growing vibrantly in Africa. The church is growing vibrantly in China, a communist country, 
This is why Paul could say he was not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God to the Jew first, to all who believe, and also to the Gentile. And you should be able to say that as well. Don't be disillusioned and pessimistic. To borrow the language of Acts 17, the world is still being turned upside down by the gospel, by conversions, by the growth of the church. And you know, from time to time, I hear Christians lament their years before being saved. They'll say something like, look, look at all the years I wasted. And true enough, but be sure not to waste the ones you're in now. Understand that God will use you because he used Paul. Here was Paul who basically wasted his young adult life trying to stomp out Christianity. And yet God used all of that, um, his education at the finest schools, his birth in a world empire, all the advantages afforded to that, being born in a Jewish home, exposed to the Jewish scriptures. He had a decided education, world class, able to synthesize the logical thinking skills of the Greco Roman university days that he had with his mass knowledge to articulate, among other things, the doctrine of justification by faith from the Old Testament. No one had really ever done that before. That was Paul. Also arguing from Isaiah 53 that the Messiah was to suffer a substitutionary atonement. That was Paul. He had a decided education that God used. He also had a dogged determination. He had an ability to connect With people around the world, the urban centers of the world, he was cultured and learned. He made use of his vast synagogue connections, reaching both Jews, which he was one, and Gentile proselytes, because he was a Roman citizen, he could connect with them. He planted churches on three missionary journeys. He followed that up with visits and letters. He used his persuasive skills with words to convince Jewish and Gentile Christians to look past their differences and to look at what united them, which was Jesus Christ and the gospel. In fact, Paul is the only one of us who wrote his own life verse. 1 Corinthians 9.16, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. And so determined was he to preach the gospel that he faced persecution, insults, false accusations both inside and outside of the church. You can go and read, I won't take the time, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where he chronicles all the things that he went through including many beatings, being shipwrecked, losing sleep at night. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. he says, Therefore be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. He lived that. He said in 1 Corinthians nine twenty two, I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. By today's standards, Paul was, by all accounts, a workaholic. And it wasn't just in ministry. He was also a Christian businessman, using the side hustle of making tents so as to not overburden the churches that were supporting him, and also to have an influential Christian presence in the community as an ambassador of the kingdom of God. He was the greatest Christian who ever lived. But he didn't just have dogged determination, he had deep affection. He loved the church so much that anxiety for all those he ministered to pressed upon him daily. He wrote wrote about that in 2 Corinthians 11. He pleaded with others to be reconciled to Christ out of love and compassion. 2 Corinthians 5. He urged the Ephesian elders with humility and tears to work as he had, not shrinking from declaring to the church anything that was profitable, teaching them in public and from house to house, testifying to both Jews and Greeks, repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. He even appealed to the Corinthians, who, by the way, 
mocked him and said of him that um, his letters were weighty and strong, but his bodily presence was weak and his speech was of no account. That was a Christian jab. And it was a dagger that stabbed Paul right in his heart. And yet he said, I wrote to you out of much affliction, anguish and heart and many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. That was Paul. He wrote to the Philippians, I've often told you and now tell you even with tears that many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. He wasn't just a sophisticated intellect. He had deep affection, a decided education, a dogged determination, a deep affection, a dedicated conviction. Nearing his execution as a prisoner of the state, he was unyielding and unwavering in his convictions. He said, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. That's another way of saying I stood where I stood and I didn't back down. And when the Judaizers demanded, for example, Titus to be circumcised, Paul said, over my dead body. That's, of course, a loose quote from Galatians. And then Timothy came along and Paul said, let's circumcise you. And you say, well, that's a contradiction. That's not conviction. No, it wasn't a contradiction. Titus had Gentile parents. Why would you circumcise a Gentile and send the wrong signal that circumcision was necessary for salvation? Timothy had a Gentile father and a Jewish mother, Eunice, who raised him. And Paul was creating another man like himself who could be all things to all people by being circumcised and relating to the Jews. He had deep conviction. It was said of someone admired for a life, lived according to principle and conviction. He yielded in small matters that he might win the greater. Such could be said of Paul. He fought the fight when necessary, but he was filled with such deep affection and such deep conviction that he picked his battles wisely. He had a deep affection for others, a deeper affection for Christ and serving others So much so that in Acts 21, on his third missionary journey, he agreed to take a temporary Nazarite vow, something he was not obligated to do, but he did. Why? Because it wasn't a big deal to do it. Someone wanted him to do it, and Paul said, sure, I'll do that. That was Paul. Strong conviction, fighting over the right things. You aren't Paul, but do any of these qualities of determination and affection and conviction mark your life? By the way, Paul was a model of true Christians. He said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ in 1 Corinthians 11.1. But to speed this up, because I promised I was going to be brief and clear, we need to move from the author and the atmosphere to the aim. And that really takes us to Romans. What's Paul's purpose in writing Romans? Where did he write it from? Who exactly composed the churches in Rome? Well, Paul wrote Romans on his third missionary journey. After he arrived in Corinth, that would be southern Greece, he arrived there to collect a gift for needy believers in Jerusalem. He speaks about this later in chapter 15. Um, Later in the letter, uh, he indicates that he's writing from Corinth because he mentions Phoebe, who was a servant of the church, who delivered this letter to the Romans. She was a part of a church in Sincrea, which was located right there next to Corinth. He also mentions a man by the name of Gaius, who it's clear, Scripture says, was a member of the Corinthian congregation. And he also mentions in the latter chapters of Romans a man by the name of Erastus, uh, who also was um, a member of the church at Corinth. Now, because I want to retain my dedication to brevity, suffice it to say, I'll save you from the hundred pages of reading by just telling you that commentators have done their work in arranging Paul's itinerary for his three missionary journeys. And they've done that by analyzing the book of Acts, and they've determined that he probably wrote Romans from Corinth in the spring of A.D. 58, maybe 57. 
But surprisingly, why Paul wrote Romans is very hotly debated. You think he wrote it as a systematic theology, but regardless of its rich, almost systematic definition of the gospel, he primarily wrote it as a first century apostolic fundraising letter. Those aren't my words, those are Doug Wilson's words, but Doug Wilson is right. Not to take away from its rich contents regarding the glories of the gospel, but the reason we have such a clear articulation of the gospel is, number one, Paul had never been to Rome. He didn't know these people. And secondly, therefore, he had to be able to tell them that he believed the right gospel so they would listen to him about other serious matters they were having in the church. And then third, and most importantly, if you read chapter 15 and 16 later on this Lord's Day, you'll find that he was planning a mission trip to Spain. And he needed money to get there, and they needed to hear the correct gospel enunciated so that they would be willing to participate and support him. Now, who exactly composed the churches in Rome is also hotly debated, but you can sort of do a reconstruction of the historical context, really going just to Acts chapter 2, verse 10, which says on the day of Pentecost that there were visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. That means at Pentecost, there were those in Rome who heard Peter preach the gospel, they saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they were converted on the spot, they returned back to Rome and planted this church. We also know that Priscilla and Aquila were probably part of the Roman church early on because in A.D. 49, Emperor Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. But in A.D. 54, Claudius died. Paul met them not in Rome, but when they were expelled from Rome. And in A.D. 54, when Claudius allowed the Jews to return, these Jewish Christians returned back to these churches. Now, Here is where we have to do a little bit of guesswork. Could it have been that what started as a church made up of Jews converted to Christianity along with Jewish proselytes who were Gentiles who converted to Judaism and then converted to Christianity, could it be that when the Jewish Christians were expelled from Rome that all you had left were Gentile Christians and all you had left was a church that would grow with Gentile Christians because there were no Jews in Rome? And so it was a largely Gentile church. And were the Gentile Christians not expelled because they weren't Jewish? Probably. And also, could there have been friction when these Jewish Christians returned back to the churches they had helped start and it's all these Gentiles who had taken over? There seems to be some sort of friction which raises the question, was it established by an apostle? The Roman Catholic Church, of course, says that it was established by Peter, um, they're wrong. It wasn't established by Peter. Uh, it wasn't established by any apostle. And that is why Paul is writing a letter to strangers. One of the chief reasons. They needed apostolic insight from the authority of God on the issues they were facing. And Paul needed money for his mission trip to Spain. The issues between these Jews and Gentiles, I don't think were really racial. I think they were more theological. These Jewish proselytes, ethnic Gentiles, would have viewed themselves essentially as Jews. That's how they would have viewed themselves. But perhaps the Jewish Christians had a superiority complex because they were still Gentiles. Could have been, and Paul addresses some of that. In any event, the Apostle Paul would set the record straight, and like a good preacher, the book of Romans has three main points. Chapters 1 through 8 speaks about the doctrine of the gospel. Chapters 9 through 11 
union in the gospel and chapters 12 through 16, application for the gospel. Sort of a a deeper analysis of that in chapters 1 through 3, Paul says Jews and Gentiles have the same dilemma. Here's the dilemma. Everyone is in bondage to sin. That leads him to chapter 4. From Old Testament exegetical foundations, Paul argues for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And he goes back to the Old Testament and he points to Abraham as exhibit A to say that Abraham was justified by faith. That then leads him in chapter 5 to a deeper discussion of justification, which then leads to chapter 6 and 7, which is uh, really a refutatio with a, an imaginary skeptic to address objections one may have to this free and sovereign gospel. So they basically said, if we are justified by faith, can we sin so that grace may abound? And Paul says in chapter 6, you can read it later, but he basically says, no way. Okay, well, if we're justified by faith, then why did God go to the trouble to give us the law? And Paul answers that in chapter 7. He says, the law was not given as a ladder to lead us to heaven. The law was given as a mirror to reveal our sin. That then takes us to chapter 8, where God discusses, or Paul discusses God's sovereign plan for the entire cosmos, specific attention on his continuing faithfulness to keep his covenant promises, to reverse fully the curse of sin in his created order. And all of that is then the controversy of chapters 9 through 11, where Paul shows God's faithfulness to his covenant promises, understood in the, the light of his saving work for the Jew first and also the Gentile and God's one family tree. And then chapters 12 through 16 is just application of the gospel. Chapter 12, application within the congregation or the body of Christ. Chapter 13, application of the gospel with respect to your relationship with civil authorities. Chapter 14, application of the gospel related to great issues. Who are the strong? Who are the weak? How do I not offend them? Chapter 15, application regarding you need to support me for this mission trip to Spain. How can the church collectively and jointly support God's kingdom monetarily? And then chapter 16, salutations and miscellaneous exhortations in terms of applying the gospel. In short, Paul tells us that God's gospel doesn't just save the individual. As glorious as that is, God's gospel is also the good news that he wants to save families and churches and countries, yea, the cosmos. God's gospel is a gospel not for the individual, it's a gospel for the nations. God's salvation is individualistic. You only get into the kingdom one person at a time. It is individualistic, but because it's individualistic, that means it's holistic. It's not merely individual, it's universal. And so in verses 1 through 7, Paul's opening salutation to to this great epistle, he teaches us one simple truth, and here it is, folks. The true gospel is God's gospel. That's it. You can't redefine it. You can't reshape it like a wax nose. You can't reinvent the wheel. The gospel of God is rolling on in the world like a snowball. It's gaining steam. It's picking up everything in its path. And as such, Paul tells us of God's gospel. Three actually important aspects of God's gospel. It's servant, it's substance, and it's saints. It's servant is Paul. It's substance is Christ. And it's saints are you, the church, beginning with the church at Rome. So let's look at these in their turn, these aspects of God's gospel. First, Paul speaks about himself. He was the servant of the gospel. Several sort of things, factors we could say marked out Paul as a servant of the gospel. 
Notice first um, his identity. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. That's an interesting way to identify yourself, but that's the way Paul chose to identify himself. By the way, this is the longest salutation in any of Paul's letters. He had never been to Rome, and so he wants to start with the basics to legitimize his authority and his credentials as an apostle. In our own day, when we write a letter or an email, most people don't write letters today, we begin by identifying who we are writing to. Dear Mr. Smith, dear Mr. Jones. Then we sign off at the end who we are. But in the first century, it was the opposite. You identified yourselves first. So Paul's following that normal construction. And Calvin may be right when Calvin says that he believes that Paul was given the name Saul as a Jewish name and Paul as a Roman name at his birth. Calvin could be correct on that. But to these strangers to whom Paul writes, he doesn't mention both his names. He only mentions one. He says, I am Paul. That, that was, I don't think, a name given at his physical birth. I, I think that was a name given at his spiritual birth. Just as Jesus changed Simon's name to Cephas or Peter upon his call by God to apostleship, Paul's saying, look, I'm not Saul, I'm Paul. And in doing this, he's making the point that he was not inferior to the other apostles. He was just like Peter. And so Paul's going to go by Paul, that's his Roman name, instead of Saul, his Jewish name, because Paul was uniquely called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And that would really lay the groundwork for him later to then call upon these Romans to help him be an apostle to the Gentiles who lived in Spain. But he wasn't a servant of man, was he? He wasn't a man pleaser. So he says, I was a servant, Paul, of Christ Jesus. The word servant is doulos. It's, of course, better translated as slave. And he identifies his master as Christ Jesus. Very interesting that doulos is rooted in the Old Testament word abed, which simply means servant of the Lord. If you go back and read the Old Testament, you'll find that Joshua, Abraham, David, and the prophets were all referred to as servants of the Lord. Paul is kind of building on that, and he's saying, I am a servant or slave of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, therefore, is Lord. As a called apostle, Paul says, I am a slave of Christ. Now, there's a very important sense in which all Christians are identified as slaves of God. Not just Old Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, or ministers of the gospel. Romans 12, Paul says, we're to be living sacrifices, right? That means you're a slave. Total devotion to God. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Total devotion. You are a slave. Or Acts 28 and verse 20, or 20, verse 28, it's slave language of redemption. Purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Total devotion. But there's another side to this. As Christians, we've also been liberated from slavery and bondage to sin by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So we are also free from sin so that in liberty we can freely serve Christ our Master. Jesus is the Lord Jesus Christ. You are His slave if you are a Christian. He is your Lord. He is the name which is above every name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And today, how do you identify? Many people today self-identify in a number of silly and ridiculous and sinful ways. But how do you identify? Your greatest title is that you are a slave of Christ. Paul was unique because he was an apostle. That was his identity, but he was a slave of Christ. Sovereignty also marked him out as a servant. 
Notice the end of verse 1, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The word called is kletos, that means chosen or appointed. Paul's calling to his vocation as an apostle was therefore by sovereign appointment. He didn't self-appoint himself. He, He wasn't chosen by other men, he was chosen by God. And it's interesting, Jesus himself chose not only the apostles, but he also chose that very term, apostle. He called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles, Luke 6.13. That word apostle that Paul uses here really refers to any messenger sent on an important mission. But in the context of New Testament apostleship, it refers to a special office of men selected, commissioned with authority to deliver the gospel message in the name of Christ. And you know the qualifications for an apostle. Paul lays it out in 1 Corinthians. You had to have seen Christ after the resurrection. You had to have firsthand knowledge of his life and doctrine conveyed to you directly. And Paul fit that bill. Let me give you a verse, Acts 26, 16. This is God's words to Paul. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. That's why Paul says in Galatians 1.12, I did not receive it, that is my apostleship, from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now I believe because of some verses in Galatians chapter 1, there's a three-year period we don't know where Paul was. We know he was in Arabia, the desert of Arabia. We don't really know what he was doing there, but it's highly likely he received direct instruction from God himself, more visions, more visions, This was like a a three-year seminary, like the true master seminary. I mean, he is underneath the master of heaven with visions directly receiving knowledge. So the apostles are immediate messengers of Jesus, infallible teachers, ambassadors of Christ. They're endowed with Holy Spirit power to preach, to perform miracles, and to lead the church as its foundation. So Paul's saying, guys, that's who I am. But note he reinforces God's sovereign fingerprints all over his life. He says, set apart for the gospel of God. The detail of God's sovereign choosing involved singling out Paul and setting him apart. When did that happen? I'll tell you when it happened. It happened to Paul the same way it happened to Jeremiah. And Paul says in Galatians 1, It pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb. Just as God had done with Jeremiah, and by the way, just as he had done with the sons of Israel, they were referred to as the sons of God separated from the nations. So there's no doubt Paul had a unique identity. Separated to the office of apostle, when all the other apostles were already chosen, given the same gospel, he didn't have an option, he had to preach it because he calls it here the gospel of God. Don't miss that. The gospel is God's alone. He is its ultimate source. It's rooted in His eternal purposes. God is the divine initiator of the plan. He's the first communicator of its truths. Thus saith the Lord. It's God's. The gospel of God. Paul stresses it's not His. It's not the Romans. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's not the government's. It's God's. In fact, one commentator, Leon Morris, says, God is the most important word in this entire epistle. Romans is a book about God. No topic is treated with anything like the frequency of God. Everything Paul touches in this letter relates to God. 
In our concern to understand what the apostle is saying about righteousness, justification, the like, we ought not to overlook his tremendous concentration on God. There's nothing else like it, this commentator says. And the gospel, of course, is the euangelion. It's the good news from God, of God, about God. And you and I will never, ever be effective messengers of this gospel if we think for one moment we can tweak it or contextualize it or modify it or offer it as some other equal religion with others in the world or some helpful advice. We must live with the conviction that there is no good news apart from the gospel of God, the one sovereignly and authoritatively revealed to the apostles of the New Testament through divine inspiration of the Holy Scripture. To which, by the way, Paul draws our attention to next. He was marked out by identity, sovereignty, but third, consistency. Note verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, I'm not going to comment much here, but Paul talks about the consistent message of the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles throughout the book of Romans. So he's saying here there's a double attestation. The Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles, they affirm the gospel of God. In other words, the gospel is not a novelty. It wasn't something the apostle Paul invented. By the way, the word prophets Prophetone, if you notice that in the text. This probably refers to all Old Testament writers because not all Old Testament writers filled the office of prophet. But all the content of the Old Testament is prophetic, no matter who wrote it. In fact, I think that Acts 3 alludes to this. Peter's words on the day of Pentecost, he says, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel, and then he says, and those after him. So in other words, Samuel's the first prophet, and all those after him, whether prophets or not, proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That was the gospel preached to Abraham. But Moses was a writer of the Pentateuch, right? First five books of the Bible, the law section of Scripture. He was also a prophet. He spoke directly about God's gospel of Christ, Deuteronomy 18.15, The Lord your God will raise up from you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So Paul's pointing to, in verse 2, the consistency of the Old Testament record. Jesus did this, right? That's why he said on the Emmaus Road, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And the law portion, Moses, and the prophetic portion. And even the sections that weren't written by prophets, it was still prophetic because it came from God. You know, there is a reason that the binding on your Bible says Holy Bible. That's the best title of any book that's ever been written. Everything is holy about this book from cover to cover. The Old Testament, the New Testament. Paul calls the Old Testament here, what does he call it? The Holy Scriptures. And by extension, the New Testament is also holy because everything in the New Testament was built on the Old Testament, constantly teasing out that theology and quoting the Old Testament. It's consistent. Its message is from God, about God's gospel, 
about his one covenant of grace, verse 2, which he promised. And when did he first promise it? Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion, the first promise of the gospel. All the way through to Romans. This is the gospel Paul preached. The gospel he preached, he's saying, bears a clear, consistent testimony to everything God has ever said through any prophet, through any writer of Scripture, ever. And it's the same message. It's the most comforting reminder to know that you have a unified Bible. Paul was a servant of this one true gospel promised from the beginning, the Holy Scriptures. As Calvin says, and I quote, Christ came not on the earth to introduce a doctrine of a new kind and one not heard before, inasmuch as he and his gospel too had been promised and expected from the beginning of the world. And that's what Paul's telling these Roman strangers. But we need to skip ahead to verses 5 and 6 for just a moment to see the fourth factor that marked out Paul as a servant of the gospel. We've seen identity, sovereignty, consistency, but there's also intentionality. And Paul, in verses 5 and 6, continues to speak about himself. He, uh, in other words, we could ask the question, why was Paul called to serve as an apostle to the gospel? What was unique about his apostleship? Well, he tells us in 5a, it was for Christ's sake, notice, through whom, and he's speaking now about Jesus Christ, that's the antecedent in verse 4, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received, he says, grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. That's why Paul preached it. It was for the sake of Christ. Now, the obedience of faith refers to conversions of the gospel, but there's three ways to interpret it. Does Paul mean, number one, obedience which consists in faith? That would be, if you're a nerdy Greek person, a genitive of apposition. Or does it mean obedience which flows from faith? That would be a genitive of source. Or does it mean obedience to the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, a genitive of the object? Well, I'm happy to report, it doesn't matter which one you choose, because the Bible teaches all three. All three are true. There is an obedience which consists in faith. That is trust leading to true conversion. Even Calvin says the chief act of obedience is obeying the gospel. The chief act of disobedience is disobeying the gospel. That's why Paul says in Acts 17 that God commands all men everywhere to repent. But because it's true that many make a profession of the gospel, but they're not possessors of the gospel, in other words, they don't truly repent. The second sense, I think, is also true that this speaks about obedience which flows from faith. In other words, all true Christians are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, but the faith that saves never comes alone. The Holy Spirit produces works. James 2.18, faith without works is dead. Paul even addresses this, doesn't he, in Romans Romans 6, 2, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, may it never be. But since all true Christians are also slaves of Christ, it's not just speaking about moral transformation, but doctrinal subjection. That I think the third sense, obedience to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3, could also be applied. Here is the point. The important thing to note is that these true conversions that Paul sought in service to God as an apostle, notice at verse 5, were for the sake of his name. Mark that. 
He wanted obedience to the faith. All right, I get that. But he did it for the name of Christ. He was a slave of Christ. He was an ambassador of Christ. Jesus was his Lord. Paul didn't seek convergence for the glory of man. Paul didn't seek convergence for the glory of himself. That's another notch in his belt. He didn't do it for others either. He did it for God. Romans 11.36 For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be glory forever. Amen, Paul would say. On the other hand, he also had a duty to be intentional. Not only for Christ's sake, he was intentional, but also for heaven's sake. In other words, the souls saved from hell were saved for heaven. And he mentions that at the end of verse 5. He says, among all the nations. So this obedience of faith, I'm intentional about to preach the gospel so that people are converted among all the nations. Notice verse 6, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So it is true, as noted earlier, that all Christians are slaves to Christ. Paul just says here, all those called to belong to Jesus Christ. You are not your own. You belong to the Lord. He is your master. He was Paul's master. And even as an apostle, he tells these Christians, Jesus is your master. The same word Paul uses to describe his call to apostleship is the same word used here to describe the sovereign call of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to gather from the nations through the gospel his people, including you who are called. Paul was called to apostleship. You are called sovereignly by his election, if you're a true Christian, to belong to Jesus. This is very important. In fact, it's one of Paul's central truths discussed throughout this letter. We become Jesus' servants as the people of God because he became our servant, right? Through humiliation. And now in exaltation, he reigns. So we serve him. He emptied himself by taking the form of the servant, Paul says in another place. Being born in the likeness of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Therefore, God highly exalted him. You see, the good news of Jesus proclaimed, the good news that Paul proclaimed, the good news that we are to proclaim is the same good news that Isaiah proclaimed. It was Israel's restoration, finding its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the crucified, resurrected Lord, the forgiveness of sins accomplished by this servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ, who was a servant by humbling himself and then exalted to Lord. Notice the word all there in verse 5, pasen. That's not insignificant. By the way, the Old Testament included and anticipated the inclusion of all types of sinners, Jews and Gentiles, to constitute the one people of God. Do we really need to quote Genesis 12, 3? Then in Abraham's family, all the nations would be blessed. Jesus, this obedient son, the servant of the Lord, to him God said prophetically, Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I mean, this is what was promised from the beginning. This is what even Daniel speaks about. In Daniel chapter 7, to him was given dominion 
and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Shall not be destroyed. And the kingdom and the dominion, Daniel says, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions shall serve and obey Him. The saints of the Most High, that includes Jews and Gentiles collectively gathered in the kingdom of God under their king. Paul is saying, I came to preach this message and this good news that Jesus is reigning as king. This is what the gospel is about. You've been called to belong to Jesus Christ. You belong to Him today in His kingdom. That's Paul. To the Romans, that's the Holy Spirit to us this morning. He presses home. You see the universal scope of the gospel. Now listen. We preach the gospel not merely out of obedience to the Great Commission. We preach the gospel not merely out of love for the nations to snatch brands from the fires of hell. Yes, that's why we do it. But primarily we have a love for the glory of God and the name of Christ, a robust belief that this sovereign Lord Jesus Christ is gathering His church from all nations, and therefore we aren't ashamed of the gospel. Not everyone is called to the ministry of preaching the gospel. No one here is called to be an apostle. But if we're true Christians, we're called to be slaves and servants and proclaimers of this news, ambassadors of Christ, as Paul says. Just on a personal note, nobody will ever truly understand me apart from understanding my call to the ministry. That, that's the thing that marks me. And it's a weird life. Very strange life. Constantly reading, constantly studying, constantly thinking, constantly preparing, constantly ministering, constantly counseling, constantly talking on the phone, and you love every minute. You wish you didn't have to go to bed so you could keep doing it. That's what it means to be called. But there are times when my precious wife will say his mind is somewhere else, he'll eventually snap out of it and get back to us later. And that's because she recognizes my call to the ministry. But as important as that is, my main identity is a slave of Christ. As important as you are and your spiritual gift may be, the most important thing about you if you're a Christian is that you are a slave of Christ. And that comes through throughout this letter. Well, Paul mentions the servant of God's gospel, number one. That moves us secondly to the substance or the sum of the gospel. And now we're going to go back to verses 3 and 4. So we looked at verses 1 and 2, 5 and 6 because they go together. Paul's kind of bouncing around. Now we're going to go back to verses 3 and 4. Who's the sum or substance of the gospel? Well, it's Jesus Christ, right? The gospel of God can only be properly understood by understanding the person of Christ. This is where Calvin says the whole gospel is included in Christ. And Luther says on these verses, here the door is thrown open wide for understanding that everything must be understood in relation to Christ. So verses 3 and 4 hearken back, just so you follow along, to the gospel of God. 
that was mentioned in verse 1. And the gospel promised before in verse 2 that finds its yes and amen centered in Christ. Or as verse 3 says, concerning his son. In other words, don't miss this. The gospel of God is not just the gospel of God. It's the gospel of God's son. He is the substance of the gospel. The Son must therefore be understood in order to understand the gospel because He's the essence of the gospel. And the Son is described through two participle clauses that sometimes are understood to be pre-Pauline hymns. Don't worry about all that stuff. It's probably not true anyway. What's important is Christ. And first Paul tells us, let's talk about the substance of Christ. Let's talk about the fact that He is eternal Son. Verse 3 Concerning His Son, Paul says. Jesus is the Son that fulfills the Old Testament promises that pointed to Him. This means, because Paul spoke about the promises spoken beforehand, everything finds its fulfillment in Jesus. This means, number one, Jesus fulfills sonship. The sonship that Israel had. Remember, they're called the sons of God. Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Jesus fulfills that. He's the true Israel. Secondly, He fulfills the office of Old Testament king. He fulfills sonship. He fulfills kingship because son was used to describe the king of Israel. 2 Samuel 14, the Davidic covenant. I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. I will... Become to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. That's speaking to David. About a son that would come from his loins. So Jesus is true Israel. He's true king, which means, listen to this. Membership into the people of God is ultimately determined in relationship to your relationship with Jesus. So Paul continues, who was, verse 3, Descended from David according to the flesh. That is, don't get tripped up over this. Jesus fulfills the promises made in the Old Testament regarding the future ruling king of David's line. As a descendant from David, Jesus was, the Bible says, according to the flesh. Simply means he had a human nature. Now since he is the eternal son of God, this doesn't mean that he was only human. In fact, The very reason that Paul speaks about his flesh is meant to imply the fact that at a point in history, he took on a human nature from David in addition to his already original and eternal sonship and divine nature. So in the first sense, son refers to his eternal existence with the father, co-substantial, equal in power and glory. But as the God-man, he had an historical beginning in the incarnation. You know this, Galatians 4.4, born of woman. Jesus was born of woman, born of the seed of the woman to fulfill Genesis 3.15. 1 John 4, 2 and 3, if any teacher comes and says that Jesus wasn't in the flesh, what is that teacher? A false teacher. John 1, the, the word son and the word logos or word are, are synonyms. It's referring to the same person. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. John 10, 29, I and the Father are one. Colossians 1, the Son is described as the image of the invisible God. 
Hebrews 1, the exact imprint of his nature. So as the eternal son, Paul is saying he did something new at a point in time. We could say, to borrow Paul's words in another place, when the fullness of time had come, Galatians 4, 4, Jesus was born into the world, listen to this, as the second Adam, the true king, the son of David, he was born in the likeness of men. But he was still eternal son, even with that human nature. And because he was the eternal son and didn't just have a human nature, Paul then moves to describe the fact he's the royal son. Already partially seen in the fact that he came from the line of David. But notice this promised king. We know that he was crucified. Yet miraculously notice what Paul says. Verse 4. And was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Herizo is the word for declared, really has the idea of to appoint or to determine or even to fix. The Old Testament background for this is Psalm 2. I read it earlier, Psalm 2-7, where David's son is appointed as the anointed king of Israel. That's the language that Paul is using. He's appointed, he's declared. Or Psalm 72-1, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to your royal son. Turn back with me to to Acts. It's just a few pages back, Acts chapter 10. And we see similar language used um, here in Acts chapter 10. This is Peter. And he says in verse 42 that he commanded us, that is the apostles, to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one, what does it say? Appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Same language. Same language. And to him the prophets bear witness, Peter says. Paul uh, also spoke this way. If you turn over to chapter 17, before the Areopagus in Athens, Paul says to these philosophers, verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods, the boundaries of their dwelling place. The word determined there is appointed, interesting, because verse 31, he has fixed a day, appointed a day, determined a day, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has what? appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead is that not exactly what Paul's saying in Romans 1 speaking about the resurrection of the dead Jesus was dead he's raised he was declared or appointed to be the son of God in power the point about Jesus appointment to kingship is emphatically listen to this not saying that upon the resurrection, Jesus was shown or appointed to be what he was all along, which is the eternal Son of God. Rather, Paul's point is that he was appointed to be God's Son in power. In other words, he wasn't merely appointed the Son of God. He was appointed the Son of God, as the verse says, in power. Then what is meant by the phrase, according to the spirit of holiness? Well, this is where the power was rooted. So here's the picture. This is simple. Paul is making a comparison between two stages of history. There is the pre-resurrection stage and the post-resurrection stage. Christ is the template. 
right? He's the second Adam. He represents us. He's the model, the eternal Son of God. And in the pre-resurrection stage, all things were made through Him, John 1.3. And in that pre-resurrection state, He became a man. The second person of the Trinity, born as a man. But because in the power of God, Paul's saying he underwent a resurrection from the dead, verse 4, now we live in the post-resurrection era. Inaugurated by the Son of God, declared as judge, appointed as ruler in the age of the Spirit. That's why Paul says he was declared to be the Son of God in power. He will judge powerfully, but also he gives the Spirit. The spirit of holiness, which produces holy living. The, 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 the comparison is in the parallel antithesis. Verse 3, the phrase, according to the flesh. And then verse 4, and power according to the spirit of holiness. The most powerful event, one of the most powerful events was Pentecost, the pouring out of the spirit. That's the evidence that Jesus reigned. So Jesus' incarnation to crucifixion, to resurrection, to ascension, to accession, brought about a new epic. It brought about a new covenant, a new creation. And it wasn't just a humiliation of deity that Jesus went to an exaltation of deity. No, He was always divine. It was the humiliation of deity and becoming man as the incarnate God-man and then being exalted and endowed as the God-man, as the second Adam, with new power and authority as the representative of His people, the mediator, the head of the church, and His body, the firstborn from the dead, the firstfruits of the Spirit. He was raised in power. That's glorious. And Paul's just scratching the surface. You think you're amazed now. This is nothing. This is just his greeting. This is his salutation. He says in Colossians, I have to read this. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. That's pre-resurrection. Visible and invisible were the thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And, this is post-resurrection, he's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus. That's why Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. He's the last Adam. And he has more power than any man who has ever lived. He has more power than you. He has more power than the innocent Adam at creation had. Adam could have said no to sin. He didn't. This is the second Adam. This is the God-man. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.45, He is the life-giving Spirit. He raises people from the dead because He raised Himself from the dead along with the power of the Spirit and the Father. We believe in a trinity. 
So Peter would say Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. That is not in some future literal reign of Christ on earth. That is now. He is ruling now. He's been exalted. He was always deity. But he was humbled deity by becoming a man. Post-resurrection, he'll never go back to just being deity. He will always retain his humanity for you. That's the essence of the gospel. There is a man in heaven who represents you. He has your flesh without sin. He's the eternal son, royal son, which means he's the global son, right? He's the imperial son, the end of verse 4. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is why the apostles had power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is post-resurrection when the power was revealed. He was raised from the dead. And he's already commissioning them with power of the Holy Spirit. This is even before Pentecost. This is before his ascension. And his power is already being felt. And after this, he's ascended and he's seated and all powers are subjected. He is both Christ and Lord. Christ, the official work as promised Messiah, anointed King of Israel. Lord, because as the second Adam, he is now taking back over his creation through the gospel. The human race. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. God's promises to Israel were fulfilled in Him, for the fulfillment of God's promises to redeem the world in order to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. That's why Paul said, I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. Because this God-man has sent the Holy Spirit who sovereignly regenerates His people worldwide throughout the generations. Well, this leads us to Paul's closing remarks. We'll be quick with this. Uh, Paul really doesn't say anything here that he doesn't say in other places, but we're talking about God's gospel, the gospel of His Son. Paul is the servant of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the sum or substance of the gospel. Third, the church, that's the saints of the gospel, right? The identity of the church, verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. I love this. Psalm 60 verse 5 speaks of the beloved ones of God, which refers to ethnic Israel. And here Paul hijacks that term. And he says, no, 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 no. God's Israel is the church. Jew and Gentile. Those in Rome. You're mostly Gentile. Psalm 65 applies to you. To those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Are you kidding me, Paul? The word called is the same word used earlier in the text. It speaks of God's elect ones, His chosen ones. That was also applied to ethnic Israel. But oh, guess what? Paul uses it in Ephesians 1. He speaks about those chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Those He in love predestined as adoption, as sons. Yeah, but there's more. Called to be saints. Wow, 
That has the idea of set apart. It's the same adjectival form used in Ephesians 1.4, translated that he would make us holy. Hagias. Israel as an ethnic people obviously were set apart by God and called to be holy. But you do realize that Peter in 1 Peter 1 quotes Leviticus 11.44, where God said to Israel, you shall be holy for I am holy. And you do realize that Peter said that the church is the Israel of God, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. 1 Peter 2.9. But we can only live holy because we are holy. You do notice that Paul's calling them holy to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, called to be set apart, called to be holy. We've sovereignly and effectually been called by God, placed in Christ, so that all true Christians are saints. They're part of the invisible church. True Christians aren't perfectly holy in conduct, but in Christ, God considers them holy. Your identity is a slave, and your identity is a saint. You're holy. That's why lightning doesn't strike us down this morning for proclaiming the name of Jesus at the top of our lungs. It's not blasphemy if you're a true child of God. He views you as holy. And therefore, every word you say is a holy word in worship. But the receptivity of the church, end of verse 7, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We've received grace, that's defined simply as God's favor or kindness shown to us. The spiritual blessings we received in Christ, Ephesians 1, and peace as well because of that grace, right? And it all comes, as Paul says, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Trinitarian here, spoken about the Son, the Father, the Spirit. They're all equal in power and glory. Peace with God only comes by the grace of justification. Paul speaks about that later in Romans 5. This is the peace, the inward peace that Jesus gives. And Paul will address that later on. Isaiah says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The Lord has conquered. He's conquered you. If you're a Christian, your warfare with God has ended. He is your Lord. He is your Christ. That is so tremendously comforting that Paul would end a salutation this way. Grace and peace be to you because you might not feel like there's peace in your life. But God won't renege on the peace he gave you through the gospel. As R.C. Sproul said one time, it's not an uneasy truce. God doesn't rattle the sword every time he's distressed with your behavior. He doesn't rattle his sword. He embraces you as a son. Sometimes with a, a firm hand of discipline. Sometimes with grace and mercy. On the other hand, such is only comforting if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian. Just as Paul wishes those in the church at Rome would receive grace and peace from God because he's assuming some there aren't true Christians, so I wish grace and peace for you. If you don't know Christ, you know Paul only wishes it for the Romans. 
I can only wish it. God doesn't wish. He decrees. He decrees grace and peace. He does so by His sovereign, effectual call. So I simply ask you, has He called you? Has He called you to Himself? It's the only way you'll know His grace, the power of His resurrection, the peace and forgiveness of sins, fellowship with the true God. Listen, this is the gospel of God's Son. There is no other gospel. There's no other gospel. It's the only gospel. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for Your Word. We know our time this morning has been a little longer than normal, but Lord, we we are amazed at the power of Your Word. We're amazed at the power of Your Gospel. We're overcome. We are undone. That Christ would stoop so low this humble deity that became exalted deity, always truly God, second person of the Trinity, but declared to be the Son of God with power. Now as the God-man, He reigns. Lord, we pray that as we study Romans, we might know the implications of His Lordship. This is so significant, so Huge for us to understand. As always, we pray if there are those here that don't know Christ, that they would bow to Jesus Christ. That um, they would recognize you as Lord because you already are their Lord. They'll either serve you in hell or they'll serve you in heaven. Break their hearts. May they repent. Draw your elect to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.